Welcome to episode number 169 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your show host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we are talking about adding combustible dust information to material safety data sheets, and we're doing that with Keith Plum, process safety and equipment consultant, director and owner of Integral Pharma Services based at Cheshire, UK. Um, and we have Keith back on the podcast after doing a podcast just a few weeks ago on how small is small, challenges in applying IEC standards. Uh, Keith, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks, Chris. Uh, uh, nice to be back. We're excited to have you. Much like last time, this will be sort of an open discussion on different challenge, I guess, that we see internationally and we see here in North America with combustible dust. In, in this topic, we're talking about these material safety data sheets or, or safety data sheets. Just to kind of give the, the listener an idea of what we're going to go through, we'll discuss what is an, an MSDS or an SDS sheet. Is it common for combustible dust to be mentioned on these type of process safety information? How would it be helpful if combustible dust included? Uh, we'll talk about some of the regulation if we know of MSDSs and what can we do to improve the sort of information moving forward. And we'll even have some back and forth on if this is a good idea and if this would be beneficial for industry. As I mentioned on the outset to Keith before we started recording, this topic seems to come up every couple of years where we have MSDS sheets or SDS sheets. And the question is, why doesn't it have anything about combustible dust? And some of them do, uh, more maybe do today, and we'll talk about that than, than did in the past. But it is a, a challenge. It's something worth discussing on the podcast here. So Keith, with with your experience, I guess a good place to start is just what what is a material safety data sheet or a safety data sheet, and how are they used in industry today? From my perspective, they uh, we've been talking about dusts, uh, and obviously of what's of interest here is combustible dust. Materials that have been supplied on the open market, you know, in, should be provided, legally required, certainly in, in Europe, the UK, to my knowledge, uh, in North America, are legally required to be provided with a data sheet, which is, is telling you the kind of, it says safety, but actually a lot of it is also health as I would understand it, information about the product. So is it toxic in any way? Is it actually a problem for the environment? But importantly, from our perspective, is it something that would, would burn, cause an explosion, etc.? And they're important to me because obviously I'm dealing with hundreds of different compounds. Um, I do a lot of work in the pharmaceutical industry. And there's a huge number of these. And it ought to be a starting point for me to work out whether or not I've got issues with combustible dust. Most of them have something and allude a little bit to the fact that there may be a problem, but not very much. And the, the lack of information to me is a problem because I immediately get a response from my clients. Well, how do you know it's combustible? And, and, you know, I mean, the standard answer, well, any finely dispersed organic chemical is probably combustible, doesn't actually move you that far forward. Um, and therefore, we're looking for something to build a safety case on. And that's really what these sheets should be doing. But they're not, you know, they don't seem to be helping. Well, that makes a lot of sense, right? Because you can just say... You can go through the lecture. You can show them the, the the introduction to combustible dust PowerPoint. Here's the explosion Pentagon. Here's the here's the fire triangle. 
Um, but if you know, if it may not move them very much, but where they're used to seeing safety data sheets used, um, and if it says com- potential combustible dust or even a combustible dust on that, then at least you have some sort of foothold to get started. It makes a lot of sense. That, that's absolutely true because if you compared it with say flammable solvents or uh, maybe something that's, uh, that's, that's toxic or a problem to the environment, you find that information is much better reported on, on material safety data. So if you've got a material safety data sheet for, let's say, ethanol, you would expect it to, at minimum, tell you the flashpoint. So you know where you are for a start. Now, of course, it, for ethanol, it's a bit... Well, so what? Because it's available in all sorts of uh, places in the public domain anyway. But once you start moving into more esoteric areas, then the material safety data sheet becomes more more important. You know, it, it might be that um, it's only the manufacturer that's, that's got that information. But sadly, when you get to combustible dust, you don't have that comparable information. I grant you there is no real comparable in information to the flashpoint for combustible dust. You know, all I can say is would that there were, but there isn't. But it's even worse than that because in many cases you get the, 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 the data sheet gives you the impression that you haven't got a problem with that particular material when it's patently obviously wrong. And I find that very concerning. Yeah, we, we kind of discussed some of the, you know, whether or not it's common. And, and I would, I don't know, do you, are you seeing more safety data sheets that have compostless information or is it still just very, very lacking? And if it is there, it's not very specific. I would say I have only ever seen one material safety data sheet that had anything like a comprehensive list of, of properties for the combustible dust. What I am seeing is more uh, people saying on their data sheets that, you know, uh, as a finely divided powder or some similar words, this could constitute an explosion risk or, or some kind of general words like that. They're admitting there's a problem, which I would say that has got more common. There's still a disturbing amount that not even saying that, but that point has become a lot more common than, than I've seen before. So, you know, but mm-hmm. I'd still say it might be 20 or 30% have actually got that far. Literally, I've only ever seen one that was any, any more detailed than that. And, and I'm still in the fact that the majority don't seem to say anything at all. And I think there's possibly an issue about the the H numbers that you can think of, that that there's a global hazard system with H numbers. And the one of them, I've got to confess it, I can't quite remember what number it is, uh, is is combustible solid. But it's not used in, in, it's not really meaningfully used. So if you think about liquids that there are in that hazard system, there are three the, the, the three categories of, of flammable liquids. Category one and category two uh, basically are, are low flashpoint liquids, and category three is high flashpoint liquids. And then there's uh, a subtle difference between boiling points and things, uh, which 
it is used to indicate, in a way, the volatility of the solvent. So you can immediately see more of a, you know, what are you doing with a solvent? But, you know, what does combustible, combustible solid mean? I mean, does that mean a, a huge, great big piece of timber that you can actually, if you put it on a fire, it can catch on fire, or does it, or what does it mean? So it's not only that people don't put it there, that that, that global categorization system isn't really helpful. We probably could do with some more more H numbers, but whether or not it's, you know, H something is 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 uh, you know combustible if the particle size is less than this or whatever. You know, I just think it's just it's not helpful. There's not enough information there in the H number. Kind of jump in because I remember now looking at this quite extensively at one point, and I'm trying to think of why, but I printed off the all the the global harmonized system of classification labeling chemicals. There's a couple hundred page documents. I was trying to find combustible dust. I ran into the same things. They, I pulled up the Wikipedia page here just to see, and it does have, I think the H numbers include explosives, gases, flammable liquids, flammable solvents, self-heating substance, self-reactive substance, pyrophoric, oxidizing substances, radioactive. That's just the, the Wikipedia page. Combustible dust is sort of like a flammable solid, but it's not. That wasn't the intent of that classification. If you read through the rest of it, I think that I think it might be H two two eight, but I, uh, I might have got it wrong. But the point is, as you say, it is not really telling the story right. That, so it's not just that the material safety data sheets don't have good information on that hazard system is missing a chunk. It's missing the bits. That you know, I don't know. I don't even know how it should be described, to be honest, because it's quite difficult to define. I mean, the, the simple way is that the EN standard that it actually might be an IEC standard now. I think it is an IEC standard. Defines a combustible dust basically as as anything with a particle size of less than five hundred microns. So that would be useful, but then that doesn't tell you the whole story. So, and again, you, Chris, may have got a bit of harder data than I am. Depends on you know what kind of uh, research papers you've looked at. But an indication that I've seen in a number of places is that if you've got a solid that includes five percent in that combustible range then you should really think about it as being combustible because you can. You, there are plenty of ways you can segregate the big stuff from the little stuff. So there could be somewhere. So if you poured it into something under gravity, there's a pretty good chance that literally by falling through air, you would segregate out the fine stuff so that it became dispersed in the air and all the heavy stuff just fell straight through and landed in whatever it was going to land. And actually... Although it isn't that, you know, the actual big stuff, probably you, not realistically, you couldn't actually get it to cause an explosion. The fine stuff, you could. So how do we define that uh, in an H number? I mean, you could say if you've got a, I mean, I'm, I'm just making sure, I think I use these terms before, but I'm not quite sure they translate into North America. But uh, if you had a bag of, of icing sugar, you know, you could virtually say that 100% of it 
it is in the flammable range. Okay, some of it might stick together a bit, but you know, when, when it comes out of when it's been made and it's first packed, you could argue that 100 percent of it is in is in the flammable uh, the combustible range. Uh, and if you went up to much bigger stuff, the, the granulation, you might say, well, hang on a minute. It, when it's first made, it might not have got much in it, but by the time you've handled it, maybe it has got 5% of fine stuff in it. So how do we really define that? Should we just say, okay, sugar, sugar is a combustible solid, or have we got to do something a bit more, which is why the material that safety data sheet really just say it's a problem when it's finally finally divided or whatever words they use. Yeah, I would agree. I, I pulled out three challenges so far. This We may not have the solutions from this episode, but we'll try to pull some of the challenges out. This global classification system used in the GHS, which is the globally harmonized system, that's a challenge. Combustible dust may not be captured properly. The second challenge I have here is general information versus specific information. We'll, we'll come back to what I think that means, but that's like generally avoid ignition sources would be a general statement where MIE is... 30 millijoules would be you know, a specific statement. That's a challenge. And then this third one is the potential. And this is an issue with all combustible dust. It's, you, you use the exact point. So if it's 100% combustible dust, you know, we can call it combustible dust. If it's, if it's 10% in there, then one, one analogy I like to use is, is bowling balls and feathers. So take a, take a sack, fill it with bowling balls and fill it with feathers and dump the thing. Well, we know what happens. The feathers all segregate from the bowling balls immediately. So if you have 10% combustible dust in your your bag and the rest is 90% non-combustible, just through processing and moving that around, it's going to tend to segregate the feathers or the, the light, low aerodynamic drag ones out. So that's a potential. But then every time you see potential, people think, well, I'm on the other side of the line. <laughs> so if you write, it's a potential combustible dust, you're going to go, oh, well, that's a potential. It's never going to happen to me. We're not going to have that problem. That's just normal human nature. You know, if I'm, we got a lot of snow here. So if I shovel and they say, well, you know, we have a chance of pulling your back out, I'm thinking, well, we have potential to pull my back out, but that's never going to happen to me. So as soon as you put that word potential combustible dust in there, either directly or ideologically, if you will, then you start to get into the human psychology of safety and people always shifting themselves to the wrong side or the, the side where they're safer, the sideline, irregardless of what the real risk is. You could end up putting some maybe arbit- a little bit arbitrary things in here, but it's a little bit like I, I, I tried to do this, and somewhere I have a graph about me desperately trying to do this, uh, which was trying to invent a dust equivalent of, of kind of vapor pressure. Uh, and, and kind of there's a number of points, really, uh, one of which is how much is what percentage of, of the the product actually is in that small size range, 500 microns or, or and smaller or thereabouts. And then there's another point, which, which there was some German work on this, which was kind of, well, how easy is it to disperse? So not every, because you've got 100% of a solid 500 microns and you've got two materials, it doesn't mean to say that, say, for example, you poured it into a vessel you get the same result. Then there's the, so there's a kind of dustiness, the quantity of dust, how easy it is to disperse. And then there's another one, which is the, 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 how fast does it fall out? A dust that's 
actual density or, or maybe the, the particle density would be better because, of course, it may have got loads of internal cracks and whatever. It might be fluffy and bit, but not a very scientific term. But so you could end up with something that where the de particle density is low and it stays airborne for much longer than something that's got a, a high particle density. So somewhere in there, there is what I described as a propensity to form a, a bustable atmosphere. And this was a desperate attempt to find a, a, a dust equivalent of flashpoint. Now, I've only ever been able to write it out as a theoretical idea. I, I don't have any real idea of how you could convert the concept into something that's actually measurable. Although I did see some work that was done in Germany. I'm not sure whether it was really done for combustible atmospheres or whether it was more done for, 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 for industrial hygiene. Um, and obviously, when you're talking industrial hygiene, you're talking about three orders of magnitude difference in the concentration. So I'm not quite sure. I, I really think there's a lot more work that could be done here that maybe get something that, that's beginning to be equivalent of those differences between flammable liquids. I honestly don't know what it is, to be honest, Chris, but I just think there is something there. Yeah, I remember from, I mean, it's way back in my academic PhD research, but things like dispersibility index. There's a couple of groups in Germany. There's a couple of groups out of Mary Kay O'Connor Process Safety Center down in in, uh, in Texas that were looking at that, and that may be some of the key to this potential combustible dust and being able to rank. Even I can't even say it without putting um, these soft describers in like low chance of being combustible or high chance of being combustible. But as soon as you say that, <laughs> you, you, the human brain thinks I'm on the other side of that line. So rightly or wrongly, that is the point about the flammable liquids category one, two, and three. They have a, an absolute demarcation line. It's a number. If the flash point is whatever it is, and the boiling point is this, then it's category one. If the flash point is this and the boiling point is that, it's category two. If the flash point is, is higher still and, and the top range is 60 degrees C, then that's category three. Okay, so they've got lines, demarcation lines. Whether that really, the, you know, I mean, I've had this where I've had two things that are right slap bang next to each other. But due to a quirk of the, uh, you know, just exactly how they fell, one's category one and the other one's category two. But actually, what would I do anyway? Because that doesn't actually tell you much. But because the next question is, is that, well, hang on a minute, what am I doing with compared to the flashpoint? So if I'm using a, a, a 60 degree C flashpoint liquid, and I'm getting close to the flashpoint in normal operation, and it is conceivable that with a bit of maloperation in some funny kind of way, I could exceed the flashpoint. It's academic that it's a category three liquid. What's important is I'm operating in a range that could make it flammable. And, and it's that kind of point. I, I don't know how we get to it, and everything is, you know, whether you like it or you don't, everything is going to be, it's not black and white. And everything is at the degree of being subjective. I mean, there's a rule in, in, in one of the EN standards 
that suggests if you don't really know that much about it, you shouldn't operate more closer than 11 degrees C uh, below the flash point of the liquid. Now, I don't know where on earth the 11 degrees C came from, but it's a kind of reasonable safety margin. And, and it's a safety margin I worked with. Everybody asked me, said, I don't know where it came from, but it's in that EN standard, and that's what I'm standing on. <laughs> it's a piece of firm ground I can stand on. And we just don't have that in the dust. We don't have that equivalent of, okay, where am I in the problem? I mean, last time we discovered this point about how small it's small. So if you've got a small quantity of dust, you don't need to worry about it. But how small small? This this podcast could maybe be how flammable is flammable or how combustible is, how explosible is explosible. It's, yeah, absolutely. How combustible is combustible. And, and, and which one of those problems, I mean, what, ironically, when you look, and we haven't got as far as the guest list thing, but when you go and look at the guest list uh, EX database thing, Quite a lot of the properties you get are things like the, the, the KST or the ST value, maybe one or two other things. But, I mean, okay, those are important for the use of designing relief systems, but they still don't give you a handle on how much of a problem it is. So uh, I'll give you an example of something I've, I've actually been working on at the moment. And this is is what happens. But well, we we know that the, a human being can generate a static electricity charge. In fact, uh, I do it continuously because my office chair and my clothes generate static electricity. And when I stand up and separate the charges, I'm charged up. When I walk to the door of my uh, outside office, which has got a metal handle on it, if I don't remember to do it, I discharge myself to the metal handle and go, "Oh, why don't I remember to discharge this flipping?" I've got a piece, I've got a wooden cupboard. If I put my hand on the wooden cupboard, I discharge myself enough to stop that, that spark. So there's an important point here. Now, I mean, I just happened to pick up, uh, again, in one of the EN standards, that if you, if you take the standard capacitance of a human being, but of course that obviously depends on size, but they were given this point, uh, and uh, you, you charge people up, you can get a spark. Uh, I think they said a theoretical spark of, of 30 millijoules, um, but actually uh, because of the uh, resistance of your skin, actually it's a bit nearer to uh, 10 millijoules. So, okay, so if we've got something that's got a, a minimum ignition energy of less than 10 millijoules or 10 millijoules and less, we, we're kind of saying, well, a, a, non, a non-grounded human being could ignite it. And, and what it actually said was is that, that there was an exception to that that um, 10 millijoule thing was if you were holding a large tool. Now, they didn't say what that particular tool was, but, you know, if you imagine somebody's got this huge great wrench in their hand, presumably it's because you charge up the wrench, it ends up, you know, you could, they said, back to the 30 millijoule. So immediately we could say, before you've even got as far as thinking about electrical equipment, if you've got something that's 10 millijoules and, and less, you've got a problem. But how many places will tell you that the minimum ignition energy is less than 10 millijoules? And then if you go back to, well, hang on a minute, it might only be a certain percentage of the powder is, is, is less than 10 millijoules, but we can segregate the powder. I want to go kind of two places on the, this discussion of safety data sheets. Um, one is into the specific versus general information. 
But before then, I just want to clear off. Uh, I want to siphon as much knowledge as you know, so I know where to go to after this discussion. Do you know who regulates? I, I guess it would be the the global harmonized system. Like, what committee does that? In, in the US, it, it it's an OSHA regulation. Where, whether they regulate it is another question. You know, that, does that mean that there's somebody in OSHA that's going through safety data sheets and you know, chucking one pile which is compliant and another pile which is non-compliant? I suspect not. And the other place, I think in Canada, there's a similar organisation to OSHA that does it. CSA or somebody else, yeah. Somebody like that, yeah. And then in, in, the, in the EU, it comes from the REACH regulation, which is all to do with chemical safety. So the, the REACH regulation requires, legally requires that chemicals be registered and that there is a safety data sheet to go with it. But again, I don't actually imagine the situation that there's anybody in the EU who's going through safety data sheets with a fine tooth comb. What's more likely is that people complain now and again and say, come on, this is just ridiculous. Now, this doesn't meet what you're supposed to do. Because whether we like it or not, this, 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 surveillance of all of these kind of regulations there's far too much for any any administration to better pay for it so while whilst there are regulations that say what it what's required I, i'm not sure that it's being policed in any great way and it's only people well, like us that are looking at them going and saying well this isn't really helping us <laughs> like well, i was kind of thinking the other side i do want to make a correction it's not the csa sorry it's the ccohs that's the canadian center for occupational health and safety yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was more thinking who creates the global harmonized standard. I remember the, the global harmonized system. I remember that now it's actually, it's a United Nations document, which means there's a, a UN committee, but they, they're they not likely to, well, I don't I don't know if you know who the UN committee is that creates the GHS documents, reach out to me, chris at dustsafetyscience.com and let me know. Um, we can kind of have a discussion about this, how combustible dust fits in, but I, I don't know if they would have subject matter experts on we'll say flammable solids to use their terminology or combustible or explosible solids I, I don't think so i might be wrong i think the other point we need to understand is why was it a lot of these things why was that ghs system created if i recall correctly it's a it's transport it's like if you're shipping stuff from one location to another they don't want to, to blow up in the truck or catch fire in the truck absolutely that's it it's for transport now when you I don't know whether it's true in North America, but if you're in Europe and you've got a, a, a vehicle with that they, they put these, I think they're called trim cards, which is a, um, again, it has a symbol on it, but one of those symbols from that GSS thing, and it has the number. And the whole point about that is if the kind of emergency services turn up, they don't need to do too much because it's already written on the side of it. And, and a lot of it is that's what it was about. In Europe, I have to get me um, things right. That I, I can't remember what it actually stands for. It, it, it's whether it's ke chemical labelling and packaging or something like that. So the regulation, I know it because it's always called a CLIP, a short. So it's CLP, but it's basically label and packaging, really for transport. Uh, and it used to be uh, um, a similar one, which which people call CHIP. 
But it was the same point. It was for transport. The main point was is that the change was is that the EU had its own system and uh, abandoned it for the GHS system. So that everything is now aligned to the GHS system. But you're right, it's for transport. I think that's where the SDS came from, safety data sheets. Yeah, and it was invented for transport. So, I mean, we have that challenge. I'm going to call it challenge number four, um, GHS. The, on the specific data sites, I think this is part of the, the key, this general information and specific information. Uh, I have an example of, of sort of a, a pretty well-written general information safety data sheet. I just got it from a previous episode that we had done, so we'll talk about that in a second. Actually, maybe we'll do that now. So <clears throat> this, is a, this is from episode 165, so not, not that long ago, Is Blood Meal a Combustible Dust? You can find that at dustsafetyscience.com slash 165. And I talked through a bunch of stuff about blood meal and um, bone meal and, and the fact that, yes, it is combustible dust. This was a question we had through the, the Dust Safety Science Help Desk. I'm um, just kind of put some material together to support that. And I found this safety data sheet for bovine blood meal, which is cattle blood. And it's, it's, got, it's got some really good sections on this general information. So under hazards and identification, it says prevention. Keep away from heat, sparks, open flames, hot surfaces. Prevent dust accumulation to minimize explosion hazards. It says things like under firefighting mes- measures, specific hazards arising from the chemical. Dust may form explosion mixture with air. Avoid generating dust. Find dust dispersed in the air in sufficient concentrations and the presence of ignition source is potential dust explosion hazard. Um, handling and storage precautions for safe handling. Use adequate ventilation. Eliminate all source of ignition. Minimize dust generation accumulation. Avoid significant deposits of material, especially on horizontal surfaces which may become airborne and form combustible dust clouds, may contribute to secondary explosions. Handling and processing operations should be conducted in accordance with best practices. For example, NFPA 652. So like this would be an example, I would say, I'll include a link to this in the show notes for this episode as well, dustsafetyscience.com slash 169. This is an example of a, a pretty well-versed safety data sheet with a lot of good general information. I like that it mentions overhead hazards, like overhead deposits, um, ventilation, it points to NFPA standards, or you can point to, to IEC or just point to something so people can get get more information. I haven't seen a lot of that, but that's a, maybe an example of something that's a lot of this general information. I guess two questions for you. One, the, the general information, anything that sort of you think should be added in addition to those kind of comments? And then the second question is, okay, on the specific information, then what what might be we be looking at adding for material parameters and that sort of properties? Yeah, so on that general information, that that you just read out there, Chris, for that uh, bovine blood um, product, uh, you know, I would have said that was that was the top end of, of what you could get on, on some data sheets. And I haven't seen many others that are as good as that when it comes to the detail. You know, they haven't they haven't referenced NFPA, they haven't put all of that sound advice in there. And you know, I, I might have seen I don't know, two or three percent that anywhere near as good as that. You know, the thirty percent I'm saying have got something. They've got you know, like a sentence that says, you know, there, there might be a problem with dust. It's probably a slightly better words than that, but sometimes not. <laughs> it's about that level, you know. Yeah, I mean, it might say keep away from ignition sources or something like that, but it doesn't go to the level that that you it's done there. So. It, it would be a good step if more of them 
were nearer to those bovine blood things. You know? I mean, that, that would be a step in the right direction from my point of view, because then you've got the point that when you're talking to clients who don't really understand this problem, you've got some detail that you can you can base what you're doing on. But the problem with it is, is, is it doesn't help with design. If you're going to go beyond just some simple things, that, that information doesn't help you. So if you go back to my point about the fact that a human being uh, can easily generate a spark of, of 10 millijoules. Are people a source of ignition that you ought to keep away from it or not? Now, obviously, you need a bit of kind of uh, safety space on there because information's not that good. But even so, it doesn't tell you anything. So on a project I'm working on at the present moment, we're at that point where we say, yeah, we, the, the operators need to be wearing dispositive shoes, footwear, uh, and the fact that the floor needs to be electrostatic dissipative. And the reason why we're saying that is actually because we're using ethanol and methanol, and we know that the minimum ignition energy for those is right down. You know, it's well below 10 millijoules. We don't know anything at the moment about the powders. We've got some powders there. I've recommended to the client they go away and get them tested. But right now, we don't know that. So your that general stuff doesn't tell you about that. It doesn't give you that thing. Well, have I got to, have I got to have dissipative shoes? Have I got to have a dissipative floor? It doesn't answer that question. And, and then when you start to get into some other, particularly non-electrical equipment, things like mills and stuff like that, with very low mi minimum ignition energies, sometimes the cutoffs at three millijoules, you get to the point where the manufacturer says, "I'm sorry, but I simply can't." design my equipment for that low level of minimum ignition energy. You'll have to do something different. So the general information doesn't tell you that. It may be good in quite a few places and might help, you know, generally, but it still doesn't allow you to make those design decisions that I keep getting involved in all the time. And I guess I had some uh, lots of reactions <laughs> as you were talking. I wrote some of them down, so I captured them. But I, I, I want to give you a chance to speak to it first. Like, would it would it be a good idea to have that information on there? Because should we, like, isn't there a risk that a, a, a facility just looks at it and goes, oh, yeah, we're, we're, we're greater than 30 millijoules. And, and isn't there a chance that an un, untrained or, you know, non-expert person looks at that SDS sheet with the specific information that maybe doesn't have the error bars associated with it or something and just, you know, makes a knee-jerk reaction without bringing someone like yourself in to, to really evaluate and do a hazard analysis and do testing and that sort of thing? like I completely agree with you. You know, So if you go to specific information, like it's on the, the, the guest this uh, database, EX database, you've got a problem, but actually they do tell you. So if you, 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 you've got to have, to me, and there may, be other, there may be other parameters, but the two that are always important to me are particle size and moisture content. And I personally got caught by this one. Um, the particle size didn't change, but we'd had a powder tested. But what the test house didn't realise was that that particular powder took up water really easily. 
So although we were going to dry it and it had a very low moisture content, by the time they actually tested it, because they'd left it around in the laboratory, well, in fact, they actually stored it with silica gel. What they didn't know was this material was so good at absorbing water, it'd take it out of the silica gel. Now, the mistake there was we didn't tell them, but they measured it, and the answer was it was more than 500 millijoules. So we designed a system based on 500 millijoules. And then it came out about this business wang on it, you got the water moisture content from. So they, once they knew the problem, they redid it and stopped it getting uh, absorbing water. Uh, and the answer came out 25 millijoules. And we went, oops, the design we just worked on doesn't work anymore because it's much lower than we expected. So I take your point. You can't just have the information on minimum ignition energy without more information about particle size and moisture content. And that was my response to my knee-jerk reaction that I wrote down here. My knee-jerk reaction is like, no, you can't put the – because people are going to design explosion protection devices on whatever's on that sheet, not knowing if that was completed by a reputable person that knew what they are doing or completely using the wrong test method. But then – but then I wrote back here, well, okay, what about safety strategies? I think it comes back to this classification system you're talking about. Like if if that general inform if that specific information rather can at least classify it into categories. I don't know the categories for flammable liquids in, in the GHS, but categories into, you know, at least bins, like not really precise, but potential for I can even I wish I could say stuff without using the word potential, but potential for low minimum ignition energy. Some materials just are never going to have low emission energy, no matter how much you grind them down. Others, you know, metals and, and, and such, you know, may have a hard time not getting ignition energy above 30 millijoules. So maybe there's some classifications, but the first step is to, to improve the, the GHS, the high level classification. Flammable solid, as intended, is, at least from my recollection, this was probably four years ago, I was reading through this, <laughs> is, is not. Um, representative of, of what we're trying to use for combustible dust. So we can change the high-level categories and then sort of work our way down to better rough categorizations. Then maybe there's something we can do with the specific information. Again, I, I don't think it should be used for equipment design because the processing changes, change the variables so much. If you dry the powder by a couple percent, you could be in a totally different classification. Yeah, absolutely. I, and, and, and that completely actually lines up I know I've talked a fair bit about liquids, but but the point is, but it completely lines up even there. So if you've got a flammable liquid category one, you still can't do any design unless you know the flash point, for example. I mean, things like minimum ignition energy of vapors are usually so low, it, it doesn't matter. It's, it's going to be a problem, so don't bother measuring it. But the flash point is probably something that you absolutely need to know. But so is something like the volatility. It, it, so I had a, uh, to work on a project where we fell over a little bit and I had to pick it up quickly because they were using a solvent where the, the volatility was so high that it was causing a problem. It, it, was, it, was, it was a category one flammable liquid. But because it was so volatile, it actually meant if you spilled a little bit on the floor, it evaporated really quickly and you were well over the lower flammable limit in, in a, you know, it was really, 
Whereas something with a lot lower volatility, it was much less of a problem, but it had the same or similar flash point. So even in the liquid world, knowing that it's a flammable liquid, category one, which is the worst case, doesn't help you design the plan. You've got to have more information. The major difference is, is that things like flashpoint and, and vapor pressure for a large number of, of, of chemicals is available in the public domain. So if you were reading the safety data sheet and it says flammable liquid category one, you go, whoop, I need no more information. It's obviously a problem, but I need to know the flashpoint and the volatility before I go any further. And that's the same thing for your dust. If you could manage to get different dust categories, you could say, oh, this one's a problem, but I need to know more. I need to know the minimum ignition energy or whatever of the actual dust I've got. I think that brings it all the way back around to the original comment when I asked why would this be important? It's as an education tool for the client, right? Maybe, maybe it's, that's the whole thing. If it's if you're handling, if you're grinding, milling, moving around, fine, not even fine, any any metal that's you know partitioned, that's probably category one. I don't know how to define it, but that's the that's the. And if we have those categories, then you could say you know, and we we had a we had a dust safety professionals ticket yesterday for laser cutting of aluminum metal uh, aluminum sheets. And it's like, you know, is this is this a hazard at all? Do we need to have a DHA? And the response is, well, we get, what's your process? You know, what's what's? But if you could just point and say, well, here's what the material safety data sheet says for that material, then at least you can start that conversation with that that individual or that group much easier. And I think that feeds all the way back to your original comment of why this would be useful and useful endeavor to pursue. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know we, I, whether or not it's in an EN standard or where the number comes from, but a lot of a lot of things on that guest estate database, as an example, have a particle size, I think, of 73 microns. Uh, I suspect it's because that's what it is in a, sam- in, in, a, um, in a standard. And it says the way that you measure the minimum ignition energy, etc., is to grind it down. So it's got an average particle size of 73 uh, microns. So if that's a standard point, then there's one thing uh, that you can hang on. You can say, okay, we're going to report all these things at 73 micron, if that's the right number. And then if, if we know that moisture content is a problem, well, how does it affect? Because, you know, something like a metal, it might not make much difference. Okay, you get moisture on the surface, maybe it does. If you've got something like my... Uh, my my chemical that absorbs water absorbs water like that, then it could be completely different. But again, we could have a standard point and say, okay, it, we're going to measure them all at whatever uh, moisture content, so that when you report it, it's the minimum ignition energy or whatever you're reporting at seventy three microns at whatever moisture content, and, and that's the line we use. In the same way that there's a method of working out flashpoint. So that, you know, there are standards that tell you how you work out the flashpoint. So that each time you get in flashpoint record, you know, it was done the same way. So if we could do the same thing with dust properties, then maybe we could do what? Something 
that makes it equivalent, but all it's actually doing is saying, actually, it's obvious we've got a problem that we need to properly investigate. It still isn't good enough for design, but it makes you go away and think about it. Well, I think that's a great place to leave this discussion off on. Um, I'm certainly going to go away and think about it <laughs> on all these topics. Um, and I'll have a little more, uh, you know, firepower next time this question comes up of SDS sheets and, and not having combustible dust. And, and I don't know, maybe we can, again, if somebody knows how this process is created through GHS um, and the UN and how that, then, then you can reach out to me and I, I'd love to, understand it more uh, and see if there's any inroads to be able to, to make any change in this area. Um, Keith, as always, very interesting discussion. Lots of lots of great points, um, lots of great questions coming up through this. Uh, I just want to say thank you again for coming on the podcast and look forward to get you back on in the future. Okay, well, it's great to be talking to you, Chris. Uh, and of course, it's always good to talk about these things because it makes, as you've said, it makes you think about it a bit more. Um, you know, as I've been talking, I've started to think about things in a way that I, I wouldn't have thought about before. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much. And again, I look forward to the chance to talk again soon. And you. Okay. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Keith Plum, and we've been discussing about adding combustible dust information to material safety data sheets or more uh, commonly named safety data sheets now through the, the Global Harmonized System, GHS. It's been a really interesting discussion. We talked about why safety data sheets, you know, might be important for combustible dust, how they could be used to illustrate if there is a challenge, if there is a problem, what prevention measures might be in place, give some indication of what the properties of the dust might be. We talked about some challenges with this, and I think I got up to four. So we have just the classification in the GHS, not really accounting for combustible dust in the best way, or not really designed for the type of challenges we're trying to solve. So that's one challenge. Two is general information versus specific information. What should be on there? You know, general advice or material characteristics for specific particle size and specific moisture content. There's the the challenge of potential hazards, using that word potential or any other form that it takes. And, and we see that a lot in combustible dust. You're always going to be falling on that other side. And that's a challenge. And then the fourth one, well, I don't know what I wrote here. So I'm going to leave the fourth one off. We'll say those are the three challenges. And I actually, I drew a big arrow around this page as Keith was talking because they sort of point to each other. It's like, okay, well, we had better general and specific information then the specific information, if we had a better classification system, could tell you whether or not it's a potential hazard or a high likelihood chance of a hazard or a low likelihood chance of a hazard. It's like the challenges sort of feed into each other and I think they all need to be solved together, um, unfortunately or fortunately. It sort of comes back and there's this question that always comes up in my mind about this using literature values for combustible dust and that it, it comes with a lot of risk because pr just processing the dust, just letting it sit, just letting it sift, letting it move through a silo, all these can change the properties of the material and the parts of the material a lot. But then on the flip side, and I like Keith's approach here, you, you still need to do the testing needed to do exposure protection design. You still need to do a hazard analysis by a trained individual, just more can we come up with a classification system that makes it easier to, for lack of a, a more uh, elegant term, sell the need to do anything, to sell the need to pursue a safety solution, sell the need to do the testing, sell the need to do a hazard analysis. And I think that's a really interesting concept and is really some of the intent of the SDS sheets in the first place is to highlight when there might be a hazard and when there might not be, not necessarily to answer all the hazards that are in there. Um, that's for the you know, the folks that are, are trained and skilled at doing that. So really interesting discussion. Again, if you have any more information on this topic, 
You can email me, Chris at DustSafetyScience.com. We'll have Keith's contact information in the show notes at DustSafetyScience.com slash 169. I mentioned a couple of previous podcast episodes. We'll have links to there. Keith mentioned the Justice DustX database a few times. We'll have a link to that. Um, that's a database that has specific material parameters. They're uploaded by uh, many different sources for a lot of materials. And I also pull up the wiki page for the, the GHS, the Global Harmonized System of Classification and Labeling of Chemicals as well. As always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I hope you have a safe and productive week ahead. Uh, and I appreciate everything you're doing to interest handling combustible dust to make them safer with the work that you're doing out there every day. 